been with CESD almost two decades. Wow. Yeah, that's you and Dave Fenoy. My crush, by the way. One of my crushes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think there's a get in line on that one. Yeah, yeah. Mm. <laughs> um, Deborah, I'm going to put you on the spot because you're in there too, Randall Ryan. And go you ahead. Know that. Go ahead. Put me on the spot. What are you putting me on the spot for? I just told you. I said, uh, I'm going to put you on the spot because you're in there too. And you know that already. Oh, that I have a crush on Dave? No, you idiot. <laughs> Oh, that was priceless. <laughs> Who, me? Little old me? Little old Randall? Stop it. Yeah, thank you, Gillian. Thank you, goddess, for getting it. Let's talk. Let's talk. Let's talk. Let's talk. A couple of weeks ago, I was speaking with one of the best and most well-known voice actors in the industry, and Deborah Wilson's name came up. She has to be the best in the industry. I'm not even sure who's second. That's what this person said. I got to tell you, there is no higher praise than when your colleagues speak privately about you in those terms. Here's my story. The very first time I worked with Deborah, she had a character who was supposed to speak an unintelligible language, and she was inventing this. The thing is, is that she hadn't even seen the script because it was under such tight NDA. So the first time she saw it was when she came into the studio. She not only did such a great job inventing this, and in a ridiculously short period of time, she set the bar for what everybody else was going to do with this particular race of people anytime that there was a character there. And oh, by the way, she also voiced two other characters for the same game in the same session that had nothing to do with those. Years as a cast member on Mad TV, Savathun in Destiny 2, Halo, Saints Row, Diablo, Cosmonius High, she has way too many credits to even attempt a synopsis. It's better if you just hear from the fascinating person that is Deborah. So let's talk voiceover, Deborah Wilson. Yes, let's talk voiceover, Randall Ryan. Let's talk voiceover, Gillian. Mm, let's do. You need your own island. Uh, you know, okay, great. I'll take it. Yeah, Gillian's Island. <laughs> and that's how it begins, Gillian. That's how it begins. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> you can come, too. You can visit my island, both of you. Yay. <laughs> yeah, you have internet? You can. I will. It's called, okay. it's called a pigeon. <laughs> Call me when you do. <laughs> I never have asked you this. Mm -hmm. You, at least to my consciousness came up more as doing comedy and especially doing sketch stuff. You don't do any of that anymore. It's not that I don't do it. It's just that it hasn't really come up. And it hasn't been a venue that's come up where it's like, wow, here's this offer. Wow, I want to create this type of show. Or wow, let's go up and do some stand-up. Or wow, let's host this event and, and bring out comedians. Mm. So it's just there just hasn't been the opportunity to do that kind of stuff live mm -hmm. more than anything else. And of course, you have to include in that equation the pandemic. So for you, it was never a conscious like, you know, I think I'm done with this and I'm just going to go do this other thing. VO became kind of a venue for you that essentially filled your plate. Yes. And then on camera, stuff started becoming less and less because I knew I was moving in a different direction and I I began to choose moving in a different direction and started getting tattooed, which was a subconscious as well as a very, very conscious decision mm -hmm. creatively, which signified not being on camera as much or not being on camera at all. So why? 
whether you were actually eschewing it or not? Why did you just say, you know what, I'm, I think I'm either done with this or I'm not going to pursue it. And you moved into what really, from an acting perspective, is almost a completely different realm. No, it's actually the same realm because people have a tendency to believe that voice acting is not acting. And so it's the exact same realm. I just don't have the lights, camera, the makeup, uh, the wardrobe, but I'm using my mind and I'm using my imagination. I'm using my third eye and I'm being able to be quite an amazing storyteller because I choose to delve into what I'm doing no differently than what I'm doing on front of camera. I may have cameras and stuff in front of me, but I've got a mic in front of me and either way, there is a story that needs to be told and at the end of the day, nobody wants to hear it, everybody wants to feel it. Mm -hmm. And so being able to create from that space easily and more openly and more giving and being able to bring myself to the table is really, really wonderful. And creating all of those varying choices, because no matter what, even if you're in a booth, you're never having a monologue. It's never a monologue. Unless it specifically is written as a monologue, it's never a monologue. It's always a dialogue. It's always a conversation. Mm -hmm. Even if the other being, other creature, other sentient thing that takes up space is not speaking, their emotions speak, their body language speaks, and so you're still using your third eye no matter what. You get a chance to create that, and you get a chance to experience that and bring yourself to the table on both realms. So it is no different. It's absolutely no different. In fact, sometimes it's even more challenging for me in voiceover emotionally because I go so deep. I bring up a lot of stuff, which is really wonderful and cathartic at the same time. But I'm very proud that I make sure that my most authentic voice of who I am begins to be a part of the being that gets the chance to come forth through me, through my voice, through my body, through my heart, through my third eye to be able to have their story told. And I'm very grateful that I'm that vessel for that. It just so happens that voiceover became so prominent before letting go, before me saying, no, I don't want to do this anymore, or, hey, I'm kind of moving away. Voiceover had already become prominent at that point. And the realms of voiceover were a full spectrum. ADR, looping, book on tape, animation, straight announce, promo announce for NBC. And most recently, I'm the first woman and the first person of color to voice two major attractions, one at Disneyland and one at Disney World Orlando, the first one being the Jungle Cruise. That's great. Wow. Yeah. That's fantastic, Deborah. So that's pretty significant. Disney has become so inclusive, and they said, we're going to flip the script to a certain extent in the narrative slightly. And if Albert Awall, traditionally, goes off on his wild adventure and leaves his capable sister to do it because they know each other and he trusts her with the radio station, then you get Skip and Missy, darling. (laughs) (laughs) And most recently at Disney World, which is a huge, I, I cried, I bawled when I found out I booked this, which is a significant thing for me. After 40 years of using Tom Kane, who had been doing the voice of the monorail system, He's the monorail Mm -hmm. captain. He's been doing it for 40 years. Now it's me. Wow. So I am now the new monorail captain. I have recorded all of the dialogue. It's a lot of work and a lot of paperwork, but it's going to be interesting to see all these people from around the world in my mind's eye or who live in the area and traditionally come to hear a woman's voice. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome aboard. (laughs) That's amazing. I'm so excited for you for that. Thank you, goddess. Thank you, goddess. Yeah, it's it's pretty prolific. So I kind of run the gamut. Plus, I do a lot of creature voices for video. I worked on a film directed by Philip Noyce, Australian director who directed Clear and Present Danger. It's a film that you can find on Amazon Prime, and it's called 
The Darkest Hour. And Naomi Watts is the only physical person in there. I think there's one snippet of a physical person, but you only see him from a rearview mirror, only his eyes. And I play the 911 officer. But the character's name is Deidre Wilkinson. And Deidre <laughs> is spelled D-E-D-R-A. Uh-huh. And my name is spelled D-E-B-R-A. And her last name begins with W-I-L, and so does mine. So hmm. I like to believe in kismet. For many years now, I've made it a point of sticking around to watch the credits in movies and watching the extra voices and things of that nature. All the loop groups. Right. And it's amazing how many times you come up. And it's like, oh, I know her. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of fun. And also, when Jane Lynch was hosting the revised version of The Weakest Link on NBC, I was the game show announcer for that. And Steve Harvey had a judge show. I don't know if it'll come back for another season on ABC primetime. And I was the court announcer on that, but it was all voiceover. And so mm. I'm really digging voiceover to the point in which I really don't have the same passion or drive for on camera because of the way I look. And at my age, it's easier to hire someone who looks like a grandma or a senior than to say, okay, well, she doesn't have any hair and she has tattoos and we need to cover her up. And so it's easier to hire somebody who already looks the part than to cover me up. When it was all comedy, it was no problem covering me up. I wasn't nearly as tattooed. But when I say that I'm tattooed, I'm tattooed from the tips of my fingers all the way through my neck down my entire body to the tops of my feet. Mm -hmm. Wow, Deborah! I have a full body suit. Wow. But I would say this, and Gillian's going to be able to speak to this more than me because she's got an on-camera career, but Hmm. you don't look like anybody that I know. And I understand we're all doing voiceover, so all of us kind of live in this world where nobody tends to know what we look like. I think you're extraordinarily striking. Part of it is that you don't look your age. You don't look anything like what something is supposed to be. And so it would just seem to me that if this was something that you really wanted to pursue, which is why I'm guessing it's something that you don't, so it's obviously not something that you're even pursuing. At least that's my guess. Correct. It's not anything I'm pursuing. However, if someone said, listen, I have an independent film, there's no money in it, but it's a passion project of mine. For me, it is the flip side of the same coin as voiceover. And if someone is saying, I really hope that you will come in and help tell this story. The story is very important to me and it speaks volumes to the world mm-hmm. in a heartbeat, in a heartbeat for stuff like that. As long as it's a project that I go, it's a passion project. I want to steep myself into this role and allow this being to come forth and tell their story. But they're far and few between because a lot of the auditions that come in, and those are far and few between to begin with, are... The sassy black grandmother, Mm -hmm. the sassy black friend, Mm -hmm. the girlfriend who is friends with the others who went to college together and one of them is dying of cancer and they play music and they dance. And one of them married a a rich guy, but he's a 'er ne'er-do-well and cheats on her. (laughs) And so they all get together to be friends again and, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm. But I did a lot of that when I was on Mad TV because those are real sitcom characters and some things never change in television. Mm -hmm. It has to a certain extent in how it's shot. Um, things like Modern Family, those amazing characters, they're all layered, Mm -hmm. but it's still a sitcom and it still has its parameters. Mm -hmm. And so because of those parameters, I realize in voiceover, I don't have any parameters. The only parameter I can set is a limitation for myself and I choose not to do that. And so no one cares whether I'm a little boy or if I'm a dragon, no one says, is that dragon black? Is that dragon a woman? Unless it's specifically in the specs that way, but nobody cares. And as I get older... I'm working more than I've ever worked. I'm 60, and the momentum is only growing. Mm -hmm. 
I'm also Daisy Duck for Disney. Are you really? <laughs> I know. Who'd have thunk it when you look at me, right? And hear this voice and say, all of a sudden this comes out really quackers. <laughs> oh, Donald. <laughs> it was done by the prolific and amazing Tress McNeil, who I know both of you know. But when it comes to the show that she was doing initially for the first season called Mickey Mouse Funhouse on Disney Junior, she said, I don't want to do a second season. I'm so busy with so many other things. And Daisy Duck is a huge commitment because sometimes it branches out into other things that are Disney oriented. Mm -hmm. And it has for me already. So it's been very, very lovely. And it was a grueling audition process because I don't do soundalikes. And initially they wanted someone who sounded very much like Tress McNeil doing Daisy Duck. And that's a tall order because Tress McNeil is fucking brilliant, number one. And number two, to sound like somebody who's doing something else as opposed to sounding like them. And I kept thinking, I don't do soundalikes. I don't enjoy soundalikes unless... It's Whoopi Goldberg, who I have down, Oprah Winfrey, who I have down, and Viola Davis, who I have down. But our timbers are all in those same registers. Mm -hmm. I didn't enjoy the process. The first time I did it, it took me three hours to get through a single audition and send it to my agent. And then the second time, I got a call back, and the first thing I thought was, why? It wasn't a joyful, hey, guess what, you got a call back. It was like, ugh. So now I have to go through a grueling process again of sounding like a woman who sounds like <laughs> Daisy Duck. <laughs> I did the callback and I went, okay, I don't do soundalikes, but guess what? Here's the positive. At least I got through a second audition, a callback for a soundalike, and I don't do soundalikes, and I don't enjoy soundalikes, and yet I got a callback. That's really great. That's the end of that. That's what I did. I wiped my hands and went, that's great. Until I got a third callback. And I went, mm. what the fuck? It was not joyful. <laughs> but when I went in the third time, I was like, oh, fuck. And I didn't mean to tank the second audition, but I showed up an hour and five minutes late. Mm. I was on my motorcycle and I took a route. But I was like, oh, I'll find my way around Burbank this way. I'll go this way. Mm. And I didn't know how I ended up. And I came in and was like, I am so sorry. I really am. And I really was. But they were gracious. The folks at Disney were so absolutely gracious, like they really wanted to hear me. And the last time I went in, I was, of course, I was on time. And I was like, OK, just go through it again. And this is going to be it. They're going to choose someone else. So just go in and do what you have to do. You've done it twice already. This is like a third tooth being pulled. You're used to it. You know, no, no, we can't. Here we go. <laughs> and it was different. Something clicked. And it was one of the most fun auditions. It was silly. I bunny hopped through it. It was amazing. And my amazing agent, Pat Brady, who has a close relationship with the Disney Corporation, who is now retired, had a retirement party and someone from Disney was there and said, I want to tell you something. I'm a producer on the show and congratulations. We wanted you. But what ended up happening is Disney Corporation wanted that Tress McNeil sound. They were afraid of losing that and losing audience. But they didn't know what they wanted. So their conformity was the Tress McNeil template. Mm -hmm. But not just Tress McNeil, Tress McNeil as Daisy Duck template, which is a tall order. Mm -hmm. And so he said, well, what is Daisy Duck? What is Daisy Duck? Who is Daisy Duck? And all these Daisy Ducks that came before Tress, what is it to the corporation as opposed to this person that didn't exist when Daisy Duck was around? So what is Daisy Duck? If you had to describe her, you would describe her by personality, but not by a person, not a human being. You're making her a human being. You're making Daisy Duck Tress McNeil. 
and it should be the other way around. So who is Daisy Duck? And can this person, Deborah Wilson, be Daisy Duck in all of those characteristics that has always been Daisy classically and the stuff that has been written for Tress McNeil in general and how we've kind of evolved Daisy Duck just a smidge from the 1950s and 60s. Can we just update her? And so when they said, okay, here's what you do. Here's Daisy in this situation. And I have to do some sound-alike stuff. And then they stopped the sound-alike stuff almost immediately and went straight into, let's do an episode. Mm-hmm. Here's how Tress does it. We're not asking you to do Tress. We're just asking you to be Daisy. Sassy, fun, all of those things in this register, though. The only thing we require from Disney is this particular register because we don't want it to match with Minnie Mouse. Mm-hmm. And so I did. And then I became Daisy. And they let me become Daisy. And Daisy became me. So the next person who does Daisy Duck, it will always be prolifically and it will always be classically what they want for Daisy Duck. And can you fit the role and fit the bill as Daisy Duck with with these characteristics and these specs as opposed to you have to sound like Deborah Wilson. She did it before and you have to sound like the Deborah Wilson as Daisy Duck. Mm -hmm. So now Daisy sounds like this. Hmm. But not too far from Tress McNeil Quackers, really. Oh, Minnie. Mickey. Oh, Donald, really? Oh. (laughs) So did you do Daisy before you did your bits for the monorail and the Jungle Cruise? I've been doing Daisy Duck for about a year now. Mm. Because what they did is they said, well, you know, we've got a lot of catching up to do. Since we know that Tress McNeil is no longer interested in doing the series, we've got a lot of catching up to do. So every recording session, usually on Fridays, was five to six episodes per Friday. Mm, Wow. And along with music. And I had to sing in Daisy Duck's register, oh, yeah. which is a challenge for me with, with my voice. But I managed it because it was Daisy. And I was like, you know what, Deborah, you're not you. So stop thinking about your register. You're Daisy. Mm-hmm. And if you can talk like Daisy, then you can sing like Daisy. And you will. And I sing. So it's like, you got this. You got this. You know, Gillian, you were saying something to me. I don't even know how long ago it was. But you said something about Deborah. And just the way that she throws herself into something that's a little bit different than somebody else. I don't remember exactly what you said with that. Well, what I find so interesting about working with you, Deborah, and also listening to you talk is just the total abandoned into the depths that you're willing and wanting to go. And I think that's really interesting. So I think the conversation that we had been having, Randall, was that sometimes people do need to be, I don't want to say led, because I don't know that that's particularly fair, but allowed. Here, you can do this, and you can go farther, and there's just more to do with the characters. I think it's rare sometimes when you hear someone approach a character and you go, wow, I had never considered that, or that is so really interesting. I actually have to stop and listen to it for a bit just to let it all soak in all the levels of what is happening. And that sort of gets in a nutshell of what happens for me when I'm working with Deborah. (laughs) (laughs) I call it immersion and possession because I need that (laughs) being to take over. So before I start any session, um, I will ask a million questions and then I will talk to them as that person. That person will come through me. It really is like an immersion and possession. And that person will come through Mm. and they'll tell you a moment about their lives and then they'll begin. It it works for two reasons. 
because I allow that possession to take place. That person is completely aware of their life. They're conscious. They're now a sentient being in their life, and they're just using my body to do it. And the booth director and the game devs or whoever's listening in can also go, yes, we like this voice. Let's raise the register. Let's give her more of this. Let's give her more of that. And so it works as a dual purpose. But once I'm involved, I have an emotional aspect to this life a personal aspect to this life, a family aspect. And what I'll do is I will break down that story immediately in that booth as I am introducing myself. And I'll tell you about my life, where I've been, why I am who I am. So I never go approach anything without asking why, 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 why. Because all those details are important because a lot of people don't pay attention to it. But emotionally, they register that vibration Mm. because it comes from a reality and it comes from an authenticity. Yeah. So how you're looking at somebody and how somebody looks at you, you can't hide it. Just like body language. You can't hide it. Mm -hmm. And so it's really, really important because body language should be used because it says, I'm not hiding my authentic being In this moment, I'm giving it a door opening so that this other being can come through and use it and tell their story. Mm -hmm. They don't have their own emotion fully because they came from a page, but they have mine and they go, yes, I can relate to that. So I'm going to take that and borrow that and I'm going to cut myself open with your past. And that's how I work. Mm hmm. That makes a lot of sense to me because I'm listening when I'm in the director mode, but also as an actor, too. I'm always listening for that tone or that scintillation that is the sound of something being true. You just know it when you hear it, like, uh aha, and that's it. That's the one. That's where everything comes together, the reality, the truth of the character, and the emotion drops in, and then suddenly it's alive. There are actors that do this. It's kind of like Gillian saying there are some people that need to be led, and that's not really fair because that's not really fair. But you seem to have the ability to both simultaneously allow yourself to be very vulnerable with what you impart, with what you do, with what you allow to come to the table, and yet you never lose yourself. It's an interesting juxtaposition. What is the mechanism that allows you to essentially throw all of yourself onto the table and throw yourself into a character and allow all those personal vulnerabilities to come forth in the character and then still just be able to turn on and say, thanks, that was fun, guys, and walk away. Um, Sometimes I do have a bit of a challenge walking away immediately and they say, hey, you okay? You need a break? And then I just recalibrate. So sometimes it does take me a minute, even if the scene takes three seconds, four seconds, where I'm saying one word. But the one word is very, very loaded, like a no or a yes or anything else. And so it's not a throwaway. It means everything because one word can be the emotional stretch and expanse of years of experience or years of pain in that one word. And so my job is to serve the project. Initially, I'm a storyteller. People say voiceover and I say yes. But first and foremost, before being a voiceover artist or a voice actor, I am a storyteller. And so it's important for me to tell your story. And so I'm here to serve your project. And I liken it like this. You hire a babysitter and you go out for the night and the babysitter calls their friends and lets the kids run around and lets them do what they want while their friend comes over and they drink a beer out of the fridge. And right before their guardian comes home, they put the kids in bed, they wash their face quickly, brush their teeth, and say, shh, now now pretend you're sleeping. And so they don't really pay attention. But an au pair says, I will treat your children like they are my children. 
So there is no phone that I have with me. No one is allowed over. I read with them. I engage them. I help them with homework. I play with them. I stimulate them. We watch something that is child-friendly, that is of your approval. I give them snacks that is of your approval. I bathe them. I put them in bed. I read them a story. I tuck them in. And you come in to do the rest by tucking them in or seeing that they're asleep safe and sound. And so for me, it's the same thing with somebody's story. When they want to tell the story, whether it's a video game or an animation or anything, I have to be your au pair. I have to make sure you get everything you want so that you go, this is purely my vision. And little did I know that this would be the voice, because a lot of times in voiceovers, people are like, especially with commercials, I, I don't know until I hear it. Yeah. You know, they can describe something, but it's like, mm, I'll know when I hear it. And so my responsibility is when I book something to be able to support and help you carve out that thing that is definitive and why. The emotion, the psychology behind it and ask you every question to go why so that that being comes to life and you go, fuck, that's what I'm, that's it, that's it. So I ask questions and I make sure that I dig into myself on that psychological level and on that emotional level and that cutting that self open level so that that being becomes so three dimensional that you go, this is what I had in mind and now it's off the paper. It's jumped off the paper, it's jumped off the pages, and it's exactly what you want, which makes it easier when you're directing me, because now that that is a full body that has depth and breadth, you can go, I want this, I want this, I don't want this, I don't want this, try it this way, try it this way, do it this way, do it this way, don't do it this way, blah, blah, blah. And that being is just there to tell their story, and they know that you are guiding them and helping them tell their story. They know that directors and game developers are there to help them tell their story so that they can be alive. And so it's easier for me to be directed by people who are like, I want this, I don't want this, I want this, I don't want this. Okay, do this, do this, do this, do this. Because it's not a dictation to me. It's not a dictatorship. It's a matter of this was your baby and now I am here to serve your project. And in serving your project, I want to be all that you expect and all that you want and all that you need and beyond that so that you go, I'm so proud of this. I look forward to doing this. And everyone goes, yes, this role is fulfilled and it becomes something that's important. I did a video game that I had no idea how massive and internationally prolific this game is and it's called Destiny and Destiny 2. Right. I had no idea who Savathun was. I didn't play the game. I don't know anything about it. I've heard the title. And then when I got the role, I still didn't know. And so I was just bringing the humanity to this being because people have a tendency to use the word evil. She's evil. And I'm like, well, I don't believe that anyone's evil. I believe that they have an intention that you just don't understand. She has to be that loner who does what she needs to do in order to reach a particular goal whether people understand it or not. And that in and of itself has an emotional toll on a being to know that no one is with them. And so they turn their back on everything as everything is turned their back on them. So instead of being just this evil, non-emotional being, this psychopath, it's because you have not been loved. Mm -hmm. And so I'm always bringing those human elements because I don't care if you're playing a sentient being or a tree. The moment it speaks, it has human emotions. The moment it speaks, and therefore, there isn't any role that I can't bring my emotional and psychological self to. I agree. This game went nuts when it came out, because it came out on Tuesday, 2-22-22. Mm -hmm. And I got massively solicited on Cameo 
to do cameos as this Savathun. And a fan had to tell me the lore of Savathun and the lore of Destiny and how it's played and the massive groups that play it across the world in clans. And it was really powerful and it was really wonderful. And some people even came to me on Cameo. Some people like, I'm going through something and I need the strength of Savathun. Would you do her voice and strengthen me in somehow or offer advice or share with me? Mm -hmm. And so it's been a great vehicle that people have emotionally used this character to go, I need something in my life or I feel like I'm missing something and I want to connect. And I've been able to take what I do in the booth, outside of my booth, and authentically share with people. And that to me was the greatest gift of all. Were you the original person doing Sabathun or did you replace somebody else? There was no Sabathun. Sabathun had been talked about in Destiny lore for 10 years. Right. 10 years. So you are the original. Yes. There's just been dialogues and monologues of Sabathun, mm -hmm. but she had never been a playable character and no one had ever really seen her. Mm. So she's in the lore, but this was the first time Destiny 2 the Witch Queen mm -hmm. was actually, oh my God, we get a chance to really see Sabathun because she's all throughout the lore, but now we get a chance to see who she is and what her voice is. Interesting. Interesting. The other question I kind of have along the same line of the first one was, given that you, at least, again, to the consciousness of someone like myself, came up through comedy, what was your love first? Was it literally just acting and storytelling? Was it comic? Was it just performance in general because you also sing? All of that? What kind of took you from childhood, essentially, to this is what I'm going to do? You're absolutely right. It was acting and storytelling. I loved being other people. I loved being other people for reasons that had been dark because of childhood trauma. And I loved being other people because I was fascinated with how I could glom on and absorb. I was relentless when it came to glomming on something and absorbing. I learned how to do an English accent by the time I was like five years old. Wow. My parents thought it was a hoot. Uh, <laughs> because it was a Diet Right soda commercial and the woman on the commercial was British. And I glommed on to wanting to do accents. And I, and because of falling in love with that English accent from that commercial, I wanted to watch The Monkees for Davy Jones. And I wanted to watch H&R Puffin stuff. And anything that had a, a British accent, British comedies, The Beatles, any interviews with people that were Brits, mm -hmm. any British movie. So for me, I was glomming on. And I glommed on to character actors. I glommed on to those that were the bad men of character actors in the 1970s and 80s. I had to be the only one my age who was 13, 14 years old who would buy a TV guide. And back then, TV guide would do a cast list after it did the synopsis. Mm -hmm. And I would circle the cast lists to see who these actors were and watch them. And I realized for me at an early age, psychologically, I was also the only kid that I knew that had a subscription to Psychology Today at the age of 14. <laughs> <laughs> Who were some of those favorite actors that you circled? Um, oh, my God. William Smith, Anthony Zerby. Oh, my God. There are just so many of them. Uh, Juliette Lewis's father, Jeffrey Lewis. I was obsessed with him. I was also obsessed with J.B. Perry. J.B. Perry, turned out, was Matthew Perry's father. Robert Pine, who turns out that he's Chris Pine's father. I was obsessed with Robert Pine. Kevin Spacey, he did a series called Wise Guy on CBS. And it was a recurring role for a whole season. Mm -hmm. And he was a psychopath and it was amazing. And so I loved watching these psychopaths because I knew that there was emotional and psychological damage. There was a kinship for me because I felt my own emotional 
and psychological damage. Of course, they acted out on it, and they were my escape. Their pain was so great that they did what they did. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. Were there women as well? Not so much women, because it was the 70s and the 80s. More than anything else, you had Wonder Woman. You had Charlie's Angels. Mm -hmm. So more than anything else, you had women that were heroes and women that were badasses. Mm -hmm. Uh, Women's lib, all of it, you know. And then you had women in comedy who I fell in love with because of what they do. Ruth Buzzy, (laughs) Joanne Worley, Mm -hmm. who became heroes. Carol Burnett. Mm -hmm. It was just, I was obsessed with Lucille Ball. So for me, they were the other spectrum of not just comedy, but heroes. They were prolific. Joan Rivers, who I ended up working with Mm -hmm. on a series with her. People like that who caught me as women who were coming to the forefront and who had to deal with the men who said women aren't that funny. Mm -hmm. They said it behind closed doors while they were smoking their cigarettes. And it was general knowledge in the industry that women weren't funny. That's why women never got the chance. Mm -hmm. But yet Joan Rivers still was the first woman to ever host The Tonight Show. Mm -hmm. It was brilliant. And her symbol was always a bee. And the reason she, her symbol and jewelry and everything else was a bee was because according to the physics and the physiology of a bee, its body weight is too massive for its small wings, mm-hmm. proportionately, so it's not supposed to fly. But tell that to the bumblebee that's already flying. Right. And her thing was, you can't tell a bumblebee that it can't fly. And that's what she was, and that's what she was symbolic of. She was an amazing human being, and I loved working with her. Mm-hmm. And she also cut herself open in order to share. I was her audience warm-up as well. and Because mm-hmm. I volunteered. Wow. I said, I want to do the warm-up. I want to do the warm-up. And what I did was I memorized everybody's name in the audience. So that by the time she came out, I introduced them individually. (laughs) (laughs) That is fascinating. And here's the also thing about Kismet. My manager at the time's name was Joan Rosenberg. Mm -hmm. And Joan Rivers' married name is Joan Rosenberg. I did not know that. And so at the audition, she just said, oh, oh, I like her. Hire her. Yes. Oh, she's the one. She's the one. (laughs) I love her already. She's great. (laughs) And that's how that came to be. Because when I auditioned, I was doing improv. I was, for me, it was like, it doesn't matter whether I get this. And I think going into acting, it wasn't a matter of where's my agent and what do I have to do? And I'm going to get this and I'm going to make this. It was a very lackadaisical attitude that I've always had and I still have. Like, it'll come and you just be yourself and have a good time. And that's a rarity because most people do the hustle thing. Mm -hmm. And I, I have to admit, I never hustled. I never, I am 60 years old and I never had to hustle for work. When it didn't come, I had to let it go. And that was a psychological and emotional challenge for me. But I never tried to hustle for work and get that back. Never. And so when the Joan Rivers thing happened, it was, I don't care if I get this. Right now, my audition is with Joan Rivers on a stage here at CBS Studios in New York on 11th Avenue and 57th Street. The lights are on. I'm dressed for the audition. And they're shooting my audition like it's a TV show. Fuck it. I'm on TV with Joan Rivers night now. I don't give a fuck if I work this show. I already have this. This moment is it for me. I did not care. This moment was it. This moment was the job. And if I do a great job here, I don't care because even if I don't book it, I don't go, what did I miss? What did I not do? I'm leaving it on the floor. I'm spilling it all on. And because I had been doing improv in New York in comedy theaters with troops, she could throw stuff to me and I would throw it right back and I would joke with her and, and there was no audience there, but I would go to the cameraman. Hi, what's your name? Okay, try this watch one. How did blah, 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 blah. And then you had to read a prompter and then back to you, Joan. 
And so I played with her. It was Joan Rivers. Mm-hmm. So I conversed with her. You know, it was never like, hi, Deborah," And it was like, hi, Joan. No, hey, Joan, how are you today? We're going to have a great show, aren't we? You're, well, actually, you're going to have a great show, aren't you? Okay, well, I'm looking forward to it. And she's like, oh, tell us about this watch, Deborah." Sure. And I could sell ice to Eskimos at that point because it was like, it was pretend. It was a, the biggest fun pretend. That was the first time I went, this is amazing. And if I don't get it, that's fine. And I remember doing voiceovers in my friend's basement. Because I would hear these radio commercials with voiceovers and I would go and find magazines and then read all of the text from the magazines, from the ads in the magazines. And I would ask my friend, listen, you have a studio, a music studio. Would you just put music behind this and then put it on a cassette for me? And I would listen going, did I sound good enough like it would be a a real spot? Yep. Okay, I'm done. So I never pursued it. But it was a matter of could I be as good as someone I heard? And did I feel it? And did it work? And I was very meticulous back then as well because I wanted to sound just like everyone else. I wanted to be as professional as everyone else. And when I sounded that way, I was done. Same thing with John Rivers. So uh, you talk about the hustle. You talk about the not doing the hustle. Correct. How did the work initially come about? Because very few people, if lucky is even the right word, get that kind of lucky where there's just enough work, especially initially, that they don't have to hustle. Here's how it started. Working for the City of New York Parks and Recreation, decided to go downtown Manhattan because Young Guns was opening up. Mm-hmm. Got a chance to see it. Came out early. Was already in downtown. I was in the village. Somebody was handing out flyers for a show. Improv at the beginning. What do you mean improv? Oh, these guys that come out, they get suggestions from the audience, and then they create comedy. On the spot. That's really cool. Preface. I had already gone to the High School of Performing Arts. Mm-hmm. But I didn't take it seriously. Like, it was fun to be immersed in that. But like Joan Rivers, yes, I ended up booking the show. But if I didn't, it was like, this is an amazing experience. Mm. So for me, I was always living to be in the experience in that moment. But I was like, I don't want to starve. I don't want to have to work hard at this. I want to enjoy it. And the moment it's not fun for me, I'm like a three-year-old. I'm out and I cry. Mm. I don't want to do this. (laughs) So I said, I'm not hustling for stuff like that. I'm not going to be a starving artist people who have to do this for their art. They're just passionate about it. I'm like, yeah, great for you. I like having food in my stomach. I don't know about you. Uh, I like a roof over my head and I like my jewelry. So I went to the show. Everyone was with a group. I was very much a loner still. And at one point, the improv group goes, hey, we'd like a volunteer from the audience, which is a part of their show. No one would get up. People were pushing each other. No, you go, you go, you go. Mm-hmm. I had done theater. I was, came from the high school of performing arts. So for me, it was like, okay, let me just see what this is. Because I didn't know what improv was. So for me, it was an experiment. Mm-hmm. Because it was so improv. What's improv? I don't know. Come and see the show. Went, raised my hand, and it was only two rules. Okay, yield and don't deny. So whatever happens, go along with everything. Mm-hmm. Don't deny it. Go along with everything. Great. So there was an improv. They got all the suggestions from the audience, and I'll never forget, it was a spy mystery movie, and it was called The Game. The exercise was called Foreign Movie. So two of the improv troupe would sit down in the audience, and they would dub what we were doing into English Mm. while I mouthed gibberish. And the other actor who was in the troupe would mouth gibberish. And so whatever these two said, we had to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> unless we took over and then whatever they said after that, we would do. And so it was a spy movie that took place in Paris on the Eiffel Tower and at the end we fall off. And that was the suggestion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so for me, I was already in that mindset to have fun. I'm like, okay, 
Only two rules to this game? Fucking easy. <laughs> Yield and don't deny. Go along with it. I go along with everything. And so for me, I got like a child. I got immersed. Mm -hmm. So it became very real for me. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I didn't see the humor in it because I wasn't trying to be funny. I was trying to do the improv, which mm -hmm. was you're a spy and you're going to fall off the Eiffel Tower. But the people who are doing your voice are telling you. So they're the vessel. They're filling my vessel. Mm -hmm. Just like every character that I do with voiceover fills my vessel. And then it's commitment time. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what happened. <laughs> the owner of the troupe said, listen, we don't have a lot of black people that do improv and certainly not a lot of black women. Would you join the troupe? No, I have a city job. Okay. But would you like to do a workshop just for fun and do it some more? Like if you don't want to come back on stage and do it and you don't want to join the troupe, let's do a workshop on a Saturday. We're just all coming around. We're playing and coming up with new ideas for games. Okay, I'd like to sit around and meet you guys again and say hi again. Absolutely, after working with you. I did. There were three other black women there. And I went, what the fuck is this scam? <laughs> <laughs> and we all played. And I'm like, this man is trying to get into black women's panties. Because there are only <laughs> black women here. He, he's done it because that's what I thought. He must have done this with other women uh -huh. and got them on stage. And it was like, hey, you know, come and play. And then mm -hmm. pick the pussy he wants. That's what I felt. <laughs> that's what I felt. He's going to pick the pussy he wants. You know what I'm saying? Like a fucking boxer. <laughs> Toblerone. <laughs> Box of Toblerone. What ended up happening is everybody left. And it was just me and him. And I was like, I'm going to have to beat this white man down. I'm going to have to beat this white man down in a rehearsal hall in Manhattan. And he said, I just wanted to let you know that this was a professional audition. They have picture and resume. But you, you get so into it and you listen and you pay attention and you're not trying to force yourself. You know how to flow. You naturally do improv. We work on the weekends. It won't interfere with your city job. And we make money. You can bring friends. You can bring family. They get a chance to see you perform. If you do no other performance, think about it. We would love to have you in the troupe. You're a new addition. You're a new dynamic. You're a black woman. We don't get a lot of black women that do improv. You're going to bring a whole new dynamic to this all-white troupe. And you have your voice. I mean, your voice. And I went, mm, okay. <laughs> Month later manager was there because she had a stand-up who was coming on after us. Hey, you know what? You're really wonderful. I would really love to represent you. No, I don't do this professionally. This is fun. You sure? Mm-hmm. I don't do this. This is just fun. Thank you very much. The person she was representing was a man at the time. Mm -hmm. So anyway, troops come and go, and I'm learning how to write now. Oh, this is fun. Mm -hmm. So I'm learning how to write, and I'm already doing what I'm doing with the improv, and this is great. We're writing sketches, and we're writing improv pieces and things, and this is improv exercises and improv games. We're just, this is really great. One of the women in there, Nancy Mura, God love her. I just adore this woman. So she ends up joining. It's an all-women's group called Significant Others. We write, we play, blah, 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 blah. We do some stuff. Nancy says, listen, I'm auditioning for a TV show. It's a pilot. I think you should audition with me. Nancy, I don't do this professionally. I know you say that, but you've already been doing it professionally because you get paid for it. And it's just a pilot. It may go nowhere, but it's going to be fun to audition. And you're not a threat because we work together. And I don't see your talent overshadowing mine. And I don't see my talent overshadowing yours. But we work together because we had this Clarence Thomas sketch. And it was hilarious. <laughs> and she's like, let's do the Clarence Thomas sketch and go in with our individual characters. Mm. So we did, and we both booked it. 
And she said, now you're going to need a manager. Mm -hmm. She introduced me to her manager, which was the same woman I had turned down years before. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Fantastic. (gasps) And so that's what I mean. I honestly, I stumbled my way up. And with voiceover, same thing. Two things I always did as a kid and I grew up doing because people were fascinated. Authentic baby crying and dogs, dog barking, dog barking in the distance, growling dogs, fighting Rottweilers, that kind of a thing. And I would run up behind my friends. (laughs) And I bet bet they loved that. I bet your friends really loved that. Oh, yeah, they absolutely (laughs) loved that. Yeah, I I kept friends for a lifetime. But what I would do is I would stand behind them and then grab them at the back of their knee. Oh, my gosh. It'd be terrifying. It's terrifying. Oh, my God. I'm surprised you didn't get hurt. <laughs> I know. It, but it was, it was funny to me. It was funny to me. <laughs> Someone laughed. And so I was in the audience at a comedy theater at La Brea. Not in the audience. I was on stage because it was uh, a young man named J. Keith Van Stratton. And I was on the show, uh, What's My Line? And they brought out celebrities from the 50s and 60s and 70s. And that's my time period. So they brought them out. They talked about their lives and what they're doing. We had to guess who they were. And then there was, of course, that chat interview from J. Keith Van Stratton and what are you up to now? And thanks very much. And then there was a board like on the original show, not a wipeboard, but cardboard. And it had a frame as if it were a picture. And they would write their name when they came out. Someone stood behind it and pulled the sign up so it looked like it disappeared. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was like when I looked at it, the first thing I thought was, this is like a magic trick for a baby, like peekaboo. So I did my baby giggles and my baby laugh. Little did I know that Paul Doherty, the head of Cunningham, Escott, Slevin, and Doherty, Hmm. was in the audience because his client was J. Keith Van Stratton. He asked me to take a meeting. I met all their agents. They were sitting in a conference room. And all I was was like, well, okay, what do you want to hear? For me, it was like I was five years old again. You want to mm-hmm. hear my English accent? Because, again, I had nothing to lose. Mm-hmm. I had nothing to lose except having fun. And I believe in being in the moment. And so acting was an kinship to me because it was always about being in the moment. And voiceover is an kinship to me about being in the moment. And I've been with CESD almost two decades. You know, Deborah, one of the most fascinating things about you is that I always look up and I cannot believe how much time has gone by. And I, I find you fascinating. I always have. Oh, thank you. You're just your own unique being, and both as an actor and as a person, and it's, um, I think that's awesome. Oh, and it's not because of my tarantulas and scorpions. Yeah, I don't know. Well, <laughs> you know, I live with tarantulas and scorpions, so I don't care. Okay. <laughs> so that, that probably we'll see? Would, that would probably be neither a draw nor a detriment. It's like, okay. oh, oh, you well, have these things. Okay, whatever. See? Yeah. There's the kismet. There's the There's kismet. There's the kismet all over again. There's the kismet. I just want to say, in listening to your story about you, about all of these aspects of you, the pictures that were coming into my mind with your beautiful descriptions, honestly, it was breathtaking to hear everything that you had to say. And I feel so fortunate to have been able to work with you as I have. I really thank you for that. Thank you, goddess. Yeah, I look forward to it. Here's to the next now with us, yes? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Randall. Sure. (laughs) All right. (laughs) (laughs) Like you do. All right. Deborah, thank you as always. Um, Yeah, pleasure. Thank you for doing this. And we need to do this again. And we might even need to do it again when we're not recording. 
<laughs> and there you have it, the force of nature that is Deborah Wilson. Let's Talk voiceover is hosted by Gillian Brashear, actor, director, visionary, and me, Randall Ryan, owner of Hamsterball Studios, delivering the world's best talent virtually anywhere. And we also can both be found at www.thevoicedirector.world. If you've got comments or questions or just want to let us know what you think, reach out at info at letstalkvoiceover.com. You can find us at all of your favorite places to get podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Podbean. If they have podcasts, chances are we're there. Thanks for listening, and let's talk voiceover again real soon.